1: She's a wife and mom and a survivor of a 14-year abusive marriage. She's a writer working in the advertising industry. Outside of her career, Elizabeth works as a grant writer for Human Trafficking Restoration House and as a leader for her church youth group. She enjoys working out, being outside, and caring for her very energetic German shepherd. Welcome, Elizabeth. and thank you so much for having me. Now, before we pushed record on this episode... Elizabeth was talking about how this is an opportunity for her to sort of process and story form her experience. I'm excited to be part of that process with her, and hopefully this will be a good experience as she shares. Is this one of the first times you've shared your story publicly, Elizabeth? Yes, it's the very
2: first time. And there's very few people in my life that I've shared the full experience with.
1: Mm, okay, so we are really honored to hear your story today. Let's start at like the very beginning. Let's talk about your childhood and how that influenced your marriage later on.
2: Yeah, you know, looking back now, it's so clear to me how everything, you know, growing up set me up for what eventually happened later. So my parents were actually married. They were part of an arranged marriage through a cult. It was the, the Unification Church. They were married in Madison Square Garden with a bunch of other people. And they went on to have five kids. I'm the second oldest. I have two brothers and two sisters. And growing up, it was just a lot of chaos. My parents were not in a good space emotionally, mentally. They both had rough upbringings. And especially my mom was overtly mentally ill and also had a lot of physical problems. So we were kind of left on our own a lot. We, five of us, sort of banded together and really work together to survive and a lot of times there was conversations about like what's mom's mood today and like always watching you know what she was feeling because if things were not going well for her that meant bad things for us so there was a lot of just mental abuse physical abuse that happened in that situation and my dad worked on capitol hill in the 80s we were out in west virginia in the panhandle And so he would commute into Washington, D.C. and sort of leave us out there in the country on the side of a mountain with my mom, who was homeschooling us. So we didn't really have a lot of contact with the outside world, other than like we would go to playgroups sometimes. But I always had this sense that there was these other families that were normal, like their mom, you know, like seemed to like care for their kids and, you know, would actually do things for their kids. But we always were doing things for ourselves. So like we would go to a play group and my older sister and I would pack the lunches, you know, just simple things like that. Like I remember growing up and like my job was to serve my mom coffee in bed. So that was just sort of like normal, but like I would look at other families and it just always felt like we were so different. Thankfully, there wasn't a lot of involvement with the Unification Church when we were living in West Virginia. We ended up going to an evangelical church And that was sort of a refuge for me. And I remember going to church camp and I had become a believer at a church event at age seven. So I was a Christian and I wanted to follow God, but it always felt like I was somehow doing something wrong. I was confused. I could never, ever get my mom's approval. There was just a lot of pain and chaos and confusion. So around 10, my dad is originally from the Midwest. And so we ended up moving to the Midwest. You know, he grew up and his family was still there. And that was sort of the start of things really going downhill. Shortly after we moved out there, my parents separated and my dad left. So that meant we had no buffer between ourselves and our mom. So my mom would keep my older sister and I up late and accuse us of awful things and make us feel like we were to blame because our dad had left there was just constant chaos like she would physically abuse us like you know i remember washing the dishes one day and she just came up behind me and smacked me across the head because i wasn't doing it the right way and that was a big theme is like i could never do things exactly the way she wanted them but she had never taught me how she wanted me to do them so There was just a lot of shame in that, that I couldn't ever figure out what my mom wanted, but she cut our hair, you know, as a punishment one day, one night when we were staying up late and she was really angry at us. She started sawing at her wrists and that actually happened twice where she tried to commit suicide in front of us. So we were going to a church and pretty involved with the youth group there and My youth pastor one day talked to my dad, who we were still in contact with, but obviously weren't living with, and said, you need to go get custody of those kids, because my older sister had basically shared what was going on. There was a torn nightgown that my mom had basically torn off of her body or something to that effect. So there was some evidence of what had happened. So my dad ended up going to get custody of us, and we moved in with him, and I was about 11 or 12. So that was something.
1: Did he get custody relatively easily?
2: There was a trial, a court hearing. And what happened was my mom basically was not in a good mental space to, I think, be able to fight for us. And my dad, I don't remember this very well, but my dad says that even her attorney said, you know, she'd probably go with her dad. I remember we were in, my older sister and I were in the judge's chambers, and he had us go over to the window and wave at our parents. And I didn't understand why at the time, but I think he was looking at our body language when we were doing that. So I guess that had something to do with it as well.
1: Custody by waving. Sorry, I've never heard of that before. (laughs) I know. (laughs)
2: Looking back now as an adult, I'm sure that there were other things that were going on as well as far as evidence and all of that, but I don't remember it. So we had been homeschooled, like I said, it wasn't always very well done um, just because there was so much chaos and there was a lot of trauma involved with having been homeschooled by my mom. I remember trying to learn to read the word turtle and I could not figure it out. And, you know, she started physically assaulting me basically because I couldn't read this word. And another time I had accidentally, well, I hadn't done anything wrong. Actually, I was learning fractions. And I filled out a pie chart in crayon, but I was writing on a surface that was kind of bumpy. And so the other parts that I had written in pencil also looked like they were in crayon because it was kind of bumpy. And she got so mad at me because I had written in crayon the whole thing. And so she like basically screamed at me and then made me go back. And so I kind of scratched the crayon off of my pie chart. But when I took it back to her, she said, oh, that was actually okay. The rest of it was done in crayon. I said, no, it was in pencil and it just looks textured or whatever. And And she kind of like blew it off and didn't apologize. And, you know, I I felt when that I had actually been right all along, but it didn't matter. So I got put into middle school at the last quarter of seventh grade, um, living with my dad. And I had always kind of wanted to go to public school. It kind of felt like really cool, like, oh, they get to have lockers and stuff like that. But that was something that I'm just not realizing how traumatic that was because you know, I had never been around kids like that. They knew all these really funny sayings and words that I didn't know. And I could read better than them. But they said that I was slow because I just didn't understand what they were saying. It was like they were speaking a different language. So I just remember at that time, just this sort of this growing need in me just for acceptance. And but at the same time, feeling a lot of shame and rejection. And like, I was different again than everyone else. And everyone else seemed to have, you know, their lives together. But meanwhile I had, you know, was living with my dad in this very small house with my four brothers and sisters, going through puberty at the same time, not having really any support because my dad is overwhelmed and, you know, is dealing with his own problems as well. And so high school was a little bit better. I got involved with soccer and newspaper and writing. But at the same time, I had friends that looking back, you know, were not healthy, would sort of make fun of me or, and, but I was always just trying to win their approval. And I had this sort of mentality that, you know, my childhood, okay, it wasn't that bad. Obviously I was fine. It was a long time ago. i had moved on and was just trying to do my best and and obviously was okay. So all through high school, I just, I really wanted a boyfriend. That seemed like to me like the ultimate symbol of acceptance. And unfortunately, I was just sort of awkward and out there, and didn't really seem like, you know there was a lot of interest from other people in me that way. So I would say that I was definitely desperate for attention. I graduated high school, and I was going to go on to, to journalism school and be a writer At the summer after my graduation. I met a boy who I had known in the past through church. He was a friend of a friend who would come to church sometimes. And I kind of went to this birthday party where he was at and he was different and sort of grown up and we started hanging out. And a month later, we were dating. I finally had a boyfriend, someone who actually liked me. And to make things even better, his family was still together. His parents were together. His mom worked at a church. And his mom was really involved with their lives. She would like do my laundry. So like I would come home from college and stay with them over the weekend and she would do my laundry. And it was like, I had been doing my own laundry since I was 13. And even before that, and like, even when I was living with my mom, she would threaten to not let me use the washing machine and have to hang my clothes outside to, to get washed. Um, The fact that his mom was so involved was something spectacular for me. And I do remember, you know, talk about red flags. The first time I ever met his mom, she was in his room changing his sheets. Now he was 17. We all kind of went downstairs and there was a, a bunch of us friends and he was like snapping at her to get out of his room. And I was sort of impressed almost or like kind of like I you know I didn't think that that you should talk to your parents like that but I was also sort of impressed that he could do that and she accepted that without it causing a huge blow up because definitely I could never have an attitude with my mom like that if I wanted you know not to be smacked
1: or something in the face. So to you did it sort of signal a good relationship kind of? Yeah yeah. Due to your experience right? Yes yes that seemed
2: like something that was accepting or like they could actually sort of, I don't know, go back and forth instead of it just escalating into this awful scene. So yeah, you're right. It it was sort of a, for all I knew, a healthy, a healthy way of interacting. So I was a freshman and he was still finishing up in high school. He was two months younger than me. And, and it just so happened to be around the, the cutoff date for grade levels. So He was in the delayed entry program to join the army. That's what he was going to do. And we just grew really, really close, really fast. And unfortunately, that was escalated by sexual intimacy that was way too premature. You know, and here I am, a Christian, and I'm having sex with my boyfriend, feeling wrought with guilt because I knew better and wanted to do what got asked of me, but also feeling like, well, it had happened, so now I can't stop. And that was also the message I was getting from him, was that we've started, we're basically married now, so we can't stop having sex.
1: So this is what he told you, and that logic made sense to you at the time. Right. With your experience. The reason why I say that is because you didn't know at the time it was coercion. Yes. That's why coercion works. I just want to pause and like let everybody know like the reason why coercion works is because for victims of coercion it does make sense on some level right and so because it makes sense you think you're consenting or you think oh yeah I decided to do this but really that was the purpose of the coercion that was the purpose of the manipulation so I just want to like pause there to did you also think you were quote-unquote basically married was that logical to you?
2: Well, so that's an example of it not exactly sounding right, but sort of entering into his world and his logic, Mm, Gotcha. which would end up being a long-term problem down the road. Like we were living in our own world. People just didn't understand us. And he always had an explanation for why he did things or why we should do certain things that sort of made sense. And I really wanted him to like me. And I really liked him. And I was, again, desperate. So, that all of those combined added up to basically me putting aside whatever reservations I had and just going along with what he wanted. Because another underlying issue here was just a lack of close support. So, my dad at this time had remarried, and that, you know, I obviously had three younger siblings and they were still living at home. And there was just this sense that. I was sort of a bother to them because they were sort of remarried. They were dealing with my younger siblings and I just wanted to get out of the way and not feel like they needed to take care of me. You know, they didn't want to take care of me. They weren't capable or they didn't have the capacity to offer that kind of support. So I would come home and stay, you know, they were in the same town. I would stay with my boyfriend's family and maybe go over there, but they didn't just didn't seem like they were that interested in my life. But in the meantime, I was getting very much ingrained with his family. I remember one time saying, I really am not, I'm not okay with us being sexually intimate anymore. I want to stop. And he basically said to me, Show me in the Bible where it says that. And me not really like I wanted to go flip through my Bible and find a verse, but I didn't know what to, you know, where to look or how to interpret that. And so I just didn't know what to do. And Without someone behind me saying, oh, this is why that's wrong. And you are very right to say it's okay if you want to stop. I just didn't have the will. I just didn't have the ability to say no.
0: Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to... Check out the group session schedule at btr.org slash group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation.
1: What you didn't have is understanding. I really want people to understand that they were sort of gaslit by society, gaslit maybe by their church unknowingly, right? Gaslit by their abuser, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so when you're in that fog of abuse, you just, you don't have the ability, but only because you don't have the knowledge. Once you get educated about it, it's like,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I can kind of take a step toward that, but I just don't want victims to blame themselves. It's kind of the opposite. I'm trying to say it wasn't your fault. You were capable, but I guess I should be saying you're right. You weren't capable. I just didn't know better. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Like. There's nothing that you could have done in at the time because you don't know what you don't know, and so if, when you don't know what you don't know, there's no way to get out of that, right? exactly.
2: And when I finally did, um and I don't want to jump ahead, but when I finally did, I couldn't go back
1: right. we'll get to that soon, yes,
2: yes <laughs> we uh, my freshman year, I was at a big university, I was so obsessed with my boyfriend, you know he would come down at every opportunity. And I just didn't get involved. I would go to classes, but come back so I could talk to him. And occasionally we would get into fights. Like one time his, he told his younger brother when I was at their house to come at me with his bath mat that it, the dog had peed on. And I was so mad. I was taking out my anger on his younger brother. And, cause I had a younger brother about that age. And so I was like, why would you do that? And, and I was just really angry. His whole family got mad at me. I had crossed a line and I was so embarrassed and mortified. I just kind of withdrew and I didn't take his calls. I was like we're done, you know, he was egging his brother on and and now I'm the one to blame. Um because of how I reacted, which wasn't good, you know, wasn't good either, but I also remember feeling at that point like okay, I'm I'm going to break up with him. And then him talking to me And somehow feeling like I had no choice again. I had to stay with him. You know, it was a lonely world out there. And, you know, I had become part of his family. And if I wasn't part of his family, I didn't have anyone. So I sort of forgave and forgot. There was no apology from his little brother. There was no apologies from his family or from him. It was just, let's move on. And again, another theme that would emerge later on. So like I said, he was going to join the army right after high school, going to go ship off to basic training. And I decided that I was going to also join the army and I was going to join the reserves. And we would go to basic training at the same time. And everything would be great because I could transfer to a unit that by wherever he is once he's in the army, and I could get my college paid for, which was a big deal because I had taken out loans in order to pay for my first year of school, so we started talking about getting married and it was always sort of brewing in the background because like I said, one of his arguments was that he thought we were already married basically because we'd been having sex. And so I was like, well, we might as well just formalize this. And so we decided that we would get married a couple of weeks before we were both leave for basic training. And we did. I remember walking down the aisle you know, meeting my dad at the back of the church and going down the aisle and just feeling this sense of dread, not knowing what I was getting myself into, but also feeling like it was way too late. It certainly wasn't a big wedding, but here all these people were, and I had to keep going. When I said my vows, I genuinely meant them. I really wanted to take care of him. I really wanted to be a family with him. I always remembered that throughout our marriage, but a couple weeks later, I was Set to sit, ship out for boot camp, and the military has learned the hard way that you give female recruits a pregnancy test before they leave for basic training. And I was the one that found out I was pregnant at the at the military processing station. Oh, wow! <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I don't know when I would actually gotten pregnant. It was before we'd gotten married, but I didn't know that when I got married. All I knew was that I was not feeling good. So, they give you an option to basically nullify all of your contracts with the military or, you know, to stay in and go to training later. And I decided just to nullify everything and set my life on a new trajectory. He ended up shipping out just the same and went to training over that summer and and that fall I went down and watched his graduation really quickly. Mm-hmm
1: sorry, to go back for just a second. How did you feel when that happened? Did you feel happy, excited, sad? Did you feel confused? I
2: was in shock.
1: Shock. Okay. I was in
2: shock. And there was also a sense of guilt because this is the natural result of doing what I had done the last eight months. And so <laughs> there's a lot of shame as well. And so I made it a point to pretend like I'd gotten pregnant on our wedding night or something like that. Just because of of the shame also from, you know, a church environment that I'd grown up in and knowing very well that I was not fulfilling those expectations. And so basically lied for quite a while. So we moved to a base and
1: I ended up having our son two months after we moved there. Really quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that you're sharing your story and how you felt. So many women have been sexually coerced like this and they haven't understood that they were being sexually coerced, first of all. And then maybe they do get pregnant or something, right? And so then they feel like they to get married or they also kind of want to get married. So there's these like conflicting feelings, right? And Exactly. And then the end result is usually that they aren't able to get help because they aren't able to tell other people what's really going mm-hmm. on. That's sort of the end result, which is what your abuser wants, right? But you don't know that at the time. You just think you're protecting yourself from embarrassment or whatever. And I I think abusers know this and they use it against you even if they don't know it consciously. It's a way that they end up manipulating their victims and that has happened to all of us. So I think that's important to point out.
2: Yes, exactly. So I had my son and he became sort of the focus of my world. This was during the early stages of the Iraq war. And my my husband deployed to Iraq a year after my son was born. I ended up moving back to where we were from and going to college, but also just taking care of our son. And he ended up getting hurt and came home early, got a Purple Heart and all of that. So I was taking care of him and he eventually got out of the army and we brought our life home to hometown and, and I finished college and I got a job.
1: Really quickly, is his injury like a long-term type of injury that's going to affect him the rest of his life? Or is this sort of a short-term injury situation?
2: he had um some some bad burns that eventually did heal up and he had a fractured hip um that i think still does give him problems but you would not know to look at him that he had been through that so i will say though that it sort of became his identity so his service and all of that which was obviously you know a good thing but it became sort of this persona that he took on that is very much honored by people around him that was sort of used against me later
1: on, which I can get to. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. I just wanted to know, like, was this something where he was maybe in a wheelchair or something where you had to like?
2: No. uh, Well, he was in a wheelchair for a while, but he was able to recover almost completely, I believe. Okay. Okay. We both attended college and ended up graduating before him. And our son was getting ready for kindergarten at that time. I was like talking about maybe homeschooling him, but the view of sort of my background and homeschooling in general was like sort of looked down upon by him and his family just because they really just thought that my background was so crazy and ridiculous and shameful that um, they didn't want anything to do with it. And there was a lot of mocking that went on as well about it. So even though that was part of who I was, it wasn't really welcome in that space you know, put her son in public school and went to work and got kind of rose pretty quickly in my career to levels of influence in our state politics. I had worked as a reporter but then I started working in communications and was really well regarded and able to, you know, use my abilities in a way that a lot of people saw, like it was very visible, it was very public roles in the legislature and in, in state government. So There was always this disconnect because here I was, I sort of had this important job. I'd go off, you know, in my fancy dress in the morning and go work for people who had a lot of influence, but I would come home and I was just constantly degraded and put down and really there's a lot of, like I said, mockery that went on about who I was and, you know, I sort of have this exuberant personality and we have sense of humor and and, but I was. Always regarded by him as not funny and just sort of stupid and too much. And it was communicated to me in very subtle ways. That was the way he thought about me. But in the meantime, you know, I really just wanted to have a good marriage. And so I would read books about marriage, especially Christian books about marriage. And I would, you know, put those things into practice because extremely self-aware which i'm coming to understand is a trauma response <laughs> but that's a whole other issue <laughs> and just trying so hard to be the wife that i wanted him to to recognize me as but it was never quite good enough so one thing about him is that he's a very picky eater and i love to cook and i love to serve other people and so i would just make these meals like he, like he wanted like steak or or like roast or something like that and it was never quite good enough. He would kind of like put a bite in his mouth and he'd kind of like taste it and then like have to say, "Oh, it's okay. You know, maybe it could be done differently this time. This way next time." Mm-hmm.
1: Like a little bit of a condescending like, "Nice try, honey, but" kind of like that kind of a thing.
2: Um it wasn't even that sweet. So it was more like like he would sort of like taste it in his mouth like and just there was you could just tell by his expression that there was something that was coming up short and I would just feel really sad, but I would resolve to try better next time. I would just keep working to try to improve myself, whether that was my physical appearance or my abilities or like working out. So I was a runner at the time and I remember I had entered into the race, a 5k race in support of our son's school. I ended up being the first place for the women's division There wasn't a ton of people in the race, but there was still something that I was really excited about. I remember coming home and I had this medal and everything. And he's like, well, when you beat my Army PT score, you'll know you've really done something. And I was just devastated because it just never was. I just never, ever could do anything that meant anything to him. I never was able to put my finger on what exactly was going on and why. I could just never make him happy because all the marriage books that I was reading basically presented this formula. Like, you know, if you respect your husband enough, if you submit to him, if you do these things, he's going to love you back or he's going to, he's going to do his part. And it never worked for me. It never, ever worked for me.
0: We're going to pause right here and continue talking about how this doesn't work for anyone that this is not how love works there's not like some magical formula where you make dinner and they love you which is ridiculous so stay tuned elizabeth and i are going to pick up on our conversation next week if this podcast is helpful to you please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five star rating thank you for helping other women find us If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.